This is Altruistic, where we speak with pioneers in the race to zero and unpack the lessons from their experiences for you, our community of impact professionals. I'm your host, Seth Hamid, and in this episode, we're going to talk about scaling up voluntary carbon markets. You may have followed the recent trends here, or you may be new to the topic. We're going to debunk the myths, cut through the hype, and understand the trends in our conversation with Brennan Spellacy. Brennan is co-founder and CEO of Patch. Offsetting is a hot and also at times controversial topic, so really excited to shed some light on some of the trickier issues in this space. Brennan, really great to have you, super excited, have seen Patch in action now and again, really impressed. I'd love to hear, and, and I'm sure our guests would love to hear as well, what your view is on Patch, what the story is, how you came to this market, maybe just a bit of an introduction to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me, Seth. I really appreciate it. As far as the story of Patch, we founded the company back in April of 2020. Beforehand, my co-founder and I were early employees at a hospitality business called Sonder. I really started my sustainability journey uh, when I studied chemical engineering at McGill. Always wanted to work in some sort of low carbon energy system like nuclear or renewables. That ended up not working out and ended up primarily doing software at startups for the following seven years. The idea behind Patch is really all about focusing on making carbon markets and carbon removal more accessible to technology businesses. So at a high level, we are an API-first marketplace for carbon removal, which means you have carbon removal providers on the supply side of the marketplace. These are folks like direct air carbon capture facilities, enhanced weathering deployments, uh, as well as more traditional offsetting solutions like forestry, where you store carbon and biomass. And we make all of that capacity transactable via API. And for those who don't know, an API is essentially how computers talk to one another. So you can write four to 10 lines of code and start taking carbon out of the air. And Brendan, most of our listeners tend to be from the business community. So they'll have different levels of awareness and understanding of the market that you play in. If I kind of take a step back and look at the carbon market as a whole, and the voluntary carbon market is kind of a subset of that, uh, how do you see the market as a whole and whereabouts do you feel is a great space for patch today and potentially spaces for patch in the future? That's a great question. So there's a there's what are called voluntary carbon markets. So these are companies primarily purchasing things like carbon removal or carbon offsets to hit some sort of either net zero or carbon neutral goal. And then there's the broader compliance markets. There's a very large compliance market in Europe. There's one in California, one in Quebec. Primarily, the mechanism there is all about cap and trade system. So more surrounding buying and selling the right to pollute versus purchasing the ability to remove carbon. Patch exclusively today works in the voluntary market. We decided that that is being our quickest way to market, if you will. That being said, as the ecosystem around carbon markets mature, we actually expect voluntary markets and compliance markets to look more and more similar to one another. So as these net zero goals get developed and more and more companies begin participating, we expect more regulation to be applied to voluntary carbon markets. And it's going to look more like just a larger carbon or compliance carbon market, but there will be different types of securities or assets traded within it. That's going to be quite a shift, right, from today, where if you look at the last few years, the cap and trade market has been 
probably what in the several billion dollars of transaction a year versus I think the VCM market is probably four or five hundred million dollars. Is that just a, a growth trajectory that has been sustained over the past few years or is it more just a, a massive boom expected as a result of regulation coming to the space? So we actually think the boom is being driven by consumer behavior. More and more we're seeing young people, millennials and, and Gen Z, begin to vote with their dollars and their feet. And these are the first two generations that are going to be materially impacted by climate change. Compliance markets, as we've historically understood them, were primarily established during the Kyoto Protocol back in 97, I think. Don't quote me. I might be misremembering the year. Now we're the kind of existing voluntary market is the evolution of that. So all I have to say is we've seen a huge amount of explosive growth between 2020 and 2021, where it's gone from about... 400 million or so in 2026 actually going to break a billion this year and we don't see any um, reason for that to slow down. How much fragmentation is there in that market? Are there any dominant players with let's say even several percentage points or 10 percentage points of that, that space or do you feel it's actually just highly fragmented across the value chain? Yeah so there are like most markets it caters to power laws. There are three or four really large offset developers in the world South Pole is one of them, Element Markets is another. That being said, on the carbon removal front, where it's primarily companies that have been started in the last five or 10 years, it's highly fragmented and we're seeing new startups come into the space every day. So we actually work with a lot of hard tech investors, not because they're investors in patch, but rather they see all the new technologies that are going to be either on like the bench stage or pilot stage and the intention is to help them come to market in the long run. So very lumpy with three or four players taking you know, 80% of it, but there's a huge amount of fragmentation, especially on the frontier for that. It must be incredibly exciting to be part of a new market sort of rolling out before your eyes, right? And I think we feel a bit the same at Altruistic where we, we focus on the measurement and the management side, also growing massively um, over the last several months in particular. When you look at the, the carbon removal market, the direct air capture space has been around for a while and has been you know, tested in different iterations. Would you say that carbon removal is, let's say, a subset of direct air capture or a macro set? And how does it relate to those technologies? Yeah, absolutely. So carbon removal is definitely a superset of uh, direct air capture. Where that's one main chemical pathway where you can remove carbon, where it's primarily large fans running CO2 through some sort of solvent at that's all that's typically proprietary, depending on the company. That CO2 stays behind, and pure nitrogen and oxygen come out the other side. But there's other ways to take CO2 out of the air, through things like mineralization or enhanced weathering. Or in some cases, people are genetically modifying uh, trees, so they grow at four or five times the rate of a normal tree, and so they're removing carbon through biomass. So loads of different chemical pathways to remove carbon. And in terms of the scale, if I look at number of tons per year that carbon removal is capable of today versus where you think that market is headed in three years, do you have a sense of that growth? It's tough to look into the crystal ball, and it's also really hard to, in my opinion, estimate exponential curves. It's, it's a little bit unclear. We don't even do 1% of the carbon removal we need to be doing in order to hit our one and a half or even two degree goals by 2050. And so to give you a sense, you know, we're doing hundreds of thousands of tons of additional man-made or human-induced carbon removal right now, but we need to be getting to the scale of five to 10 gigatons per year. So there's a, we're many orders of magnitude from where we need to be. You know, the growth rate's gonna be probably somewhere in between that, but if we're gonna hit our climate goals, the 
Tagger of the entire ecosystem needs to be quite high in order to hit where we go. I understand that you are technology agnostic to some extent within the carbon removal space, but is there any one type that you would bet on as the technology that is either the, the most tried and tested with the best potential, or just the one that if innovation could drive it forward would really be the winner in the space? I think that's tough, and I'm going to give a little bit of a non-answer, and the reason primarily goes back to the fact that because this is such a massive problem, putting all of your eggs in one basket is probably not the approach you want to take. We want to deploy, you know, 10 to 100 times more capital into this ecosystem so you can try a bunch of different solutions. A lot of them aren't going to work out, and that's okay. It's okay to, you know, especially because if you only have 10 to 20 years to get this right, it's okay to have a couple misses because we really need to be optimizing for shots on goal. That being said, you know, things like direct air capture are great because they store carbon for over 10,000 years. That's incredible, but they're incredibly energy intensive. And so if you don't have a really great source of dispatchable renewable energy, like hydrogen or geothermal, it's gonna be a little bit tougher for that solution to work in a particular geography. Maybe another solution that doesn't require a lot of energy to be in a lot of different places is like enhanced weathering, which is primarily using this material called olivine, which reacts with the ambient air and sucks down CO2. Now, that requires a lot of energy in a very short amount of time to grind up that olivine into smaller pebbles. But then, once you spread it out, you don't need any more energy investment. Uh, but it's also very heavy on land use. And so, each kind of solution has their strengths and weaknesses, and each kind of country or geography is going to have its strengths and weaknesses as well. So, it's tough to say like which one is going to quote-unquote win. Uh, I, I would probably guess, much like today with renewable energy, it's not going to be just one. We have wind, solar, geothermal and then nuclear fission, not on the renewable side, but on the low carbon side. And I expect something very similar. We're going to have like four or five technologies at scale, each with multiple gigatons of capacity eventually. And do you expect these to ultimately overtake the nature-based solutions category or be pretty much at the same scale or, or smaller? Yeah, it definitely needs to get to the same scale. Well, it actually needs to exceed the scale of nature-based solutions. The reason nature-based is great is because the tech is already here. It's been here for thousands and thousands of years. But it's only as permanent as that piece of nature, whether that's soil or, or biomass in the case of trees, is there. And so I think nature-based solutions are going to be a great bridge solution where it can buy us a lot of time in the short term as we figure out some of the other elements out. That being said, if you truly want to have the carbon permanently removed from the carbon cycle, trees are part of the carbon cycle. So it's, you know, it's more of a bridge piece of technology, much like carbon removal in aggregate, really, right? Ideally, Patch doesn't need to exist by, you know, 2100 because everything's, you know, renewable or fusion or whatever that no carbon feature looks like. So carbon removal as a whole is, is kind of bridge tech by definition, assuming you think we're going to get to a fossil fuel-less future. And I think that there's also a bit of a movement and a desire to start loading ancillary benefits like for biodiversity or water security onto the carbon value to benefit from the same token. Do you see that taking off, or do you actually think that there's a need for separate tokens of some sort, whether it's called an offset or another kind of credit, that can achieve those ends, or do you see them actually using the same infrastructure? And um, how do you think about non-carbon impacts, or so non-GHG impacts? Yeah, totally. So coming from the, back, the background of being a programmer, there's this concept called the single responsibility principle, where if you have a piece of software that does a million things, it's probably not going to be good at any of them. So I'm of the opinion that these things should be like highly decoupled from one another. Direct air carbon capture 
incredibly good from an environmental benefit perspective, literally does nothing for a biodiversity and water consumption perspective. And so I'm of the opinion that kind of having separate solutions, laser focused on particular problems is probably the best way to approach things. I'm always optimizing for, you know, focus on fewer things and do them better. So that's most likely the path I would take. That being said, I do think it's also worth championing the positive side effects or benefits or typically called co-benefits of Typically, it's nature-based solutions that have these. That being said, we should not let those co-benefits cloud the carbon sequestration drawbacks, like lack of permanence or a slower rate of sequestration. Because again, with nature-based, you're typically limited by the rate at which nature takes place in. So the growth rate of the tree is the limiting factor of sequestering carbon. So biodiversity, water security, obviously incredibly important problems. But a lot of times I've seen people let those secondary attributes in the case of climate distract from having a larger climate impact. And if I look at how pricing works in this space, um, and sorry for peppering you with questions, it's just such an interesting topic and I think there are so many nuances and there's also so much ambiguity in this space and so many different opinions, right? So I think it's, it's really good to have a rich discussion around the basic facts here. When you look at the pricing, my understanding is that the nature-based solutions tend to gravitate towards something in the range of, let's say, uh, five, six, seven, ten euros per ton, for example. Whereas on the carbon removal side, you can often get up into the several hundreds of euros uh, per ton or more. Do you see that kind of difference really declining? Do you see those two price points coming closer together? Do you think that actually they just need to be priced differently? How would you see that side evolving? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a, a two-piece response to that. So the first is, if you look at just tons of carbon, the price is obviously quite different. The delta in price is quite different. That being said, though, there's a lot of, and this is something we focus a lot on patch on, is the underlying metadata of that particular ton is incredibly important and not frequently enough talked about. And so I mentioned the rate of sequestration earlier. This is a dimension where, you know, if you need to hit a net zero goal by 2050, but your forest is only going to sequester the number of tons you need by 2070, you're kind of, you're missing the mark there, right? The other element is the durability, where how long is that ton actually sequestered? Now, for direct air carbon capture, that's 10,000 years. For trees, it's typically 100 years. So that's basically 100 times more durable. But So if you're thinking about it through a ton-year accounting perspective, direct air carbon capture is actually less affordable than a nature-based solution is, which is really how we need to be thinking about things in the first place, because we're not the ton will eventually get undone if you go further enough out. And so and as a result, the positive climate benefit will also go away. So I think that's kind of an important nuance to consider. The second element is all about cost curves. So if we looked at the cost per you know, megawatt or kilowatt hour of solar or wind 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was multiple orders of magnitude more expensive than fossil fuels. And today it's the inverse, right? Where you know, at least in California, wind energy is almost free in some cases because it's the cost is so low compared to like coal, which has a lot of maintenance associated with lighting things on fire every day. That kind of delta in price was primarily driven by production, right? Where you have this idea of a cost curve and as production goes up, typically unit cost goes down. It happens with semiconductors, it happens with renewable energy, and we expect to also happen with direct air carbon capture, where some of the only production facilities of direct air carbon capture are sequestering, you know, tens of thousands of tons. So there are no scale economies, there are no robust playbooks. So as production goes up, we expect price to go down over time as well. I think it's super 
interesting to look at the, the life cycle of these projects and how they differ. And my understanding, and I may be mistaken here, is that when you would when you would do traditional, let's say, deforestation avoidance or REDD plus style projects, you'd take something like a 30-year time horizon and then you'd structure the pricing over that period of time. And so if you look at a, a lifetime of a thousand years or more for a particular project, do you, do you actually work that into the pricing when you bring these offsets to market? Is it actually that if you're buying into something that has 500 years of sequestration versus six or seven or 800 or 1,000, there's a difference in price on that basis? There is not currently. And so that's actually what I, something I would advocate for. Now, pricing as a whole in current markets is actually, in my opinion, quite inefficient. It's not like the stock market where there's a huge amount of visibility on why something's a particular price or a bunch of alternative options there's coming from hospitality as well the efficiency of like hotel pricing or airline pricing is incredibly sophisticated current markets are not remotely as liquid as those and so as a result you end up with a bunch of pricing inefficiencies as well where patch um, does not set the price of uh, the carbon removal we actually our suppliers set it and as a result they're in many cases flying blind and actually even asking patch for market data to understand Am I competitive? Am I not competitive? I'm covering my cost of goods sold. Uh, so how much should I be pricing this at? And so it's also a symptom of just the infrastructure surrounding the ecosystem not being built out. And that's actually something Patch spends a lot of time on, which is how do we build tools for our suppliers to understand where they are in market, what should they be charging, what should they not be charging, um, so if we drive a bit of that efficiency. Um, but it's really just a symptom of of lack of liquidity and lack of visibility and transparency in the market today. One of the things that I find really interesting about Patch's approach, and um, like I said, we, we kind of, Altruistic doesn't really compete in this market, but we've seen a number of players you know, in, in, in conversations we've had. And one of the things that we find really interesting about Patch is that you, you take a, a Shopify approach to the developer side, which is, you know, my understanding is that you try and provide a set of tools that make the lives easier for developers, basically. And, yeah. and you're kind of, you're, you're touching on one, right, which is price discovery and support there. And, and I imagine there are other tools as well. What are the, the main areas that developers struggle with that actually could benefit from a lot of streamlining or simplification? The biggest one is international payments. So a lot of these folks want to be selling internationally, but for the most part, they might not even have a accounts receivable team. They're very small shops typically. So how do you kind of automate the collection in many different currencies? Uh, Patch is available in like 100 different currencies. How do you automate the internationalization of your product? We're currently in England. Everything's presumably in English. But how do you sell it to people in Germany or to friends? Maybe your content isn't actually internationalized or localized. So how do we help you with that? as well as inventory management. So this is something we dealt with at Sonder a lot, where you had this idea of a channel manager, where you would load your inventory into one place and it would fan out to you know, 100, 200 different marketplaces and locations. Patch does something very, very similar, where you can put a single ton in one location and get many, many, many different eyeballs looking at it. And once that, once that ton is actually sold, you only need to retire it again in one location, and then none of those 200 different channels can book it or, or purchase it. So those are kind of the major pieces we're focusing on right now. Pricing, international payments, localization, and inventory management. At, at Altruistic, our customers tend to be in the kind of consumer space, very often fashion, retail, food, grocery, this sort of area. And the reason we, we work with those customers is because the emissions number tends to be quite big. Mm -hmm. uh, but often these sorts of companies will also be interested in the offset market. And I think that one of the themes that we see really coming out is that 
Uh, they're looking for offsets. When they are looking for offsets, they're looking for offsets that can support and enhance their brand and their yep. brand value proposition really fit with that thematically. How important would you say the narrative is here? And I mean, almost if you had to kind of quantify it, would you say that actually a great narrative can double the price of an offset versus a lesser narrative? And how would you go about supporting some of the suppliers on your platform in getting that narrative right? That's a great question. So, you know, with respect to changing the price of a particular ton, I think a lot of the conversations we have is how do we get buyers to participate at all at this point? We're pretty much in any one for most corporates in their both carbon management as well as carbon compensation journey. But we're always reframing the conversation on how do you make sustainability not a cost center, but a revenue driver, whether it's through your customer acquisition, retention. We actually do a lot of things with fintechs and reward providers. So we work with a company called Ascenda Loyalty, and they're actually allowing you to put your credit card points into different forms of carbon removal. So the narrative is incredibly important because, you know, we have a bathing suit brand called Lingerie using Patch. They allocated most of their carbon removal dollars to seaweed because they're ocean adjacent. So again, if you want to make it a revenue driver, the narrative is incredibly important. The key though is to make sure the narrative is good and the environmental benefit is good. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to have a positive spin on something as long as the climate impact is there. I'm very outcome oriented. If you decide to use some sort of permanent carbon removal because you think it sounds nice or because you're a PhD in climate science, I think I think both are awesome. But the key is to not let that narrative distract from the underlying quality of the tech. Of course. No, that makes total sense. You mentioned that we're in the first innings of this market. What today is the typical, let's say, average transaction size that you're seeing? And do these tend to be forward-looking contracts for, let's say, the next three, four, five years or one-offs? Yeah. So the average size transaction because we're an API business is very variable. Well, you have some companies, if they're you know, offsetting one credit card transaction at a time, I think let's scale up a few dollars. And you have some folks maybe pushing their entire corporate footprint through patch on the scale of you know hundreds of thousand dollars. On an account level, it's typically on the scale of hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars per year. That being said, we're gonna see how that evolves. You know, We recently announced a partnership with Afterpay in just in time for Black Friday. They do billions of dollars of GMV monthly. And so we'll see what they do on the carbon compensation piece, the billion dollars of GMV in their case is actually spend on goods. And so we're expecting, you know, maybe one or two orders of magnitude less on carbon removal, which still puts you in the tens of millions of dollars ballpark. So we'll see how it all plays out, but we're gonna we're beginning to see larger, primarily e-commerce and financial infrastructure players begin to enter the space and work with patch, primarily because of our API-driven nature. One of the things we've noticed in, in our market is that the UK is very slightly ahead of Europe. I think in many ways, European policy is quite quite far-sighted and quite quite sophisticated. But I think that the UK has maybe perhaps brought it into practice a little faster. And the US seems a bit further behind Europe as well in terms of the practice. Would you say that the carbon offset market mirrors that? Or do you find there's a different geographic emphasis right now? I think the... Macro is about is probably similar for patch specifically because we're primarily selling to technology companies. These tend to be more progressive from an environmental perspective, though. So we're not selling to maybe your traditional insurance or steel manufacturer. We're selling to companies that are again primarily run by people who are going to be materially affected by climate change in their lifetime by you know 
40 or 30 year olds. And so as a result, they tend to index a little bit more liberal, a little bit more progressive, a little more environmentally focused. So for us, um, we've not really seen any particular slowdown. If anything, even in the U.S., we've seen an acceleration. But I do think that's because of a sampling bias that Patch has rather than uh, the overall ecosystem within the United States. It makes sense. We talked a little about the the regulatory framework for this market and how that can be one of the things that helps unlock growth. What would you say right now are the main structural barriers and what are you expecting, let's say, out of this COP or perhaps next COP? There's two pieces. The first is because current markets are growing so quickly um, and at least in the voluntary market, they're highly unregulated for this COP, as well as the next kind of couple of months, I'd expect to see more ground rules put in place as how to behave or operate within voluntary carbon markets. So, you know, we talked about earlier how not every ton is truly a ton. What's like the structured metadata you have to disclose as an offset developer or a carbon removal developer to really help people understand what are they actually buying? Patch right now, we're actually trying to do our best to work with the task force for scaling voluntary car markets, as well as a few other organizations, and are almost trying to play this self-governing role where we're almost putting what we think the world needs to look like onto the suppliers and making sure they collect and report on this data. But again, ideally, there's some sort of neutral global organization saying these are really the ground rules to operate in. The second piece, which will be a little bit more nation-specific, I imagine, is I expect to see more financial incentives for developers as well as buyers. So if we looked at what helped electric vehicles and renewables really kick off in a really dramatic way in the last two decades, it was tax breaks, right? In the United States, we have 45Q already in place, uh, which essentially gives you $75 per ton sequestered in a very particular chemical pathway. What I would like to see is both that benefit expanding um, what we pay per ton is about three times the amount for EV subsidies than it is for carbon removal. So at least get that equal, right? I think it's about three or $400 per ton of emissions abated in an EV in the United States versus only $75 per ton for carbon removed. So we have a bit of wiggle room from a budget perspective. Um, and the second piece is expanding that to more technology types. Right now, I believe only direct air carbon capture is actually compensated. But how do we get bi-world geosequestration or enhanced weathering compensated. The technology is there and the chemical pathways for scale are there, but they're not getting the same love direct air carbon captures get it. And Brennan, you mentioned the task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets, and, and you, you're probably familiar with what's been happening over the last few days with, with Greta and Greenpeace. What are your what are your views on that? It might be worth rehashing what is going on. So at a very high level, and I'm going to be slightly reductive, is Greenpeace is advocating for not having offsets at all. They view it as like a get-out-of-jail-free card, essentially. Usually, when I hear anyone saying we need to stop all of anything ever, regardless of related to sustainability or not, I tend to have a, I don't want to say knee-jerk reaction, but a hesitation. It seems to lack nuance, in my opinion. There is no pathway to avoid a degree and a half of heating without gigaton-scale carbon removal, period. That does not mean decarbonization, and I mean aggressive decarbonization, is not also necessary. But to say we can't, we should not invest in carbon removal, I think would be a pretty poor misstep. I, I think one of the main challenges is that 
the get-out-of-jail-free card is something that everyone will pretty much realize is ineffective, let's say, in 10 or 15 years' time. But right now, over the next five years, it becomes a really easy way for uh, heavy emitters to, to sort of buy themselves more time. Mm. Uh, your, your market is actually quite different. Right? Your market is the technology space. I mean, do you think there's actually benefit in having some sort of restrictions on who can and should buy offsets when and how much they might have done in abatement or avoidance within their value chain before they're eligible to offset or use the get-out-of-jail-free card? Would you see that as an avenue there? I think that is interesting. I mean, to be fair, at the cost permanent card removal is at, it's really not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's, you know, it's quite expensive in some cases. But that being said, you know, we have SBTI releasing their most recent guidance saying, I believe not more than 5 to 10% of your footprint can be compensated with permanent card removal. The remainder needs to come from some form of decarbonization. Now, that's not specifying industry. That's just saying, you know, you can really be doing a 10 or, or 15% um, offset, if you will, which is honestly consistent with what most client models have it, where we do about 50 gigatons a year and we need to remove between 5 and 10. So that's, you know, on the 50 gigatons, that's 10 to 20%. It's consistent with what SBTI said. So I, I'm a huge fan of kind of the guidance they put forward, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Industry specific, it's going to, like, the more rules you add, kind of like tax code, like the harder it is to stay compliant. And so this is already good behavior that is not happening as frequently. And so I would encourage most policymakers not to make it harder to do the right thing. That being said, obviously some rules need to be put in place. But the idea of doing nothing, I think, is is not going to get us anywhere. And how do you see Article 6 playing into this? And do you think that there is a solution to the Article 6 conundrum when it comes to double counting? And maybe just to rehash the, the challenge, right? I mean, right now, if you were to generate offsets in Brazil, you could both export those offsets, sell them basically to a, a foreign buyer, but also they'd be counted towards Brazil's NDC. Do you think there's a solution either expected out of these discussions happening right now? Do you think a solution's possible? Do you expect one to be coming soon? I think it's, it's definitely a solvable solution. I expect it most likely to be solved through technology. I mean, you can't double buy a share of stock in a company. So I don't, I can't imagine why we can't solve this problem um, with carbon credits as well. They're both digital assets that exist or digital securities that exist. It's just a matter of the market being immature and um, where there, you know, have been hundreds of billions of dollars invested in financial infrastructure and maybe billions, if that, invested in the infrastructure associated with climate and environmental markets. And so I think it's just a degree of maturity the idea of this double counting problem is like massively problematic and will result in us only hitting half of our goal in the most extreme case. And so more investment definitely required, but I, I'd most likely rely on software in this particular case. Software is very good at making sure something will get done one time. And you have a bunch of people trying to, you know, in spreadsheets account for things and effectively what's happening right now, gonna be, there's going to be huge problems associated with that. Given the substantial potential for nature-based solutions in the global south, do you think that there's a risk that these um, economies become very effective exporters of their NBS capacity, but that means they're effectively left carrying the emissions for the world 20 years on? Or do you actually think that this sort of balances itself out, either through a software solution or otherwise, where it's a more equitable split? Yeah, that, that's interesting. If we can actually use software to make sure things aren't double counted, I think the nations themselves ought to have the autonomy to understand, you know, does it make sense to have net exports or net imports from a carbon perspective? Now, I don't, I'm not going to claim to be a 
geopolitical mastermind. So I'm not sure what, what makes the most sense for Latin America and Africa. So we'll see how that pans out. But at the end of the day, we probably should focus on like, let's prevent deforestation in the South right now. You know, this claim just came out the other day where we're going to try ending deforestation by 2030. So let's try not burning the Amazon. Let's start with that. And then is there enough land to actually have nature-based solutions in addition to arable land for growing crops and things like that for these nations? I'm not sure I haven't done that land study yet, but that's why you can't put all of your eggs in that one basket, going back to the point I was making before. It might make sense for Iceland to have a huge number of direct air carbon capture facilities in the north that sell to maybe these nations, um, where they can leverage their geothermal electricity up there with not much very growable land. It's not noted for their ability to harvest crops versus they are in, you know, in the south. So I think there's a couple of solutions. We'll kind of see how the Tetris comes together. But again, it kind of starts with understanding what each nation needs and having that true system of record to prevent this double counting problem you're describing. Every now and then, Brennan, someone mentions blockchain in the context of offsets. I'd love to get your perspective on that, right? When you talk about a software solution that can actually manage for this double counting and create this sort of transparency, I think blockchain comes to mind for a lot of people. Would you say that's part of the answer? Yeah, I'm a bit torn. And the reason for that is that there's two big problems with accounting for, for carbon. The first is this kind of software record or ledger, if you will. And blockchain is obviously really well positioned to solve that problem. For those who are unfamiliar with blockchain, it's a decentralized way to account for different types of digital assets. And one of those digital assets could be carbon credits or carbon removal capacity. Now, going back to my point on making it easy to do good things, international governments are not really known for their software savviness. So if we haven't even been able to get them onto Web 2.0, are we actually going to get them on Web 3 tech? I'm not sure. It feels like an opportunity to build a lot of things and have a really tough time rolling it out. That being said, like I've been proven many, been proven wrong many times before, and I'm personally a big crypto bull myself, so we'll see how that pans out. But the second piece, which crypto really doesn't address, which is the other component, especially with nature-based solutions, is this physical to digital mapping problem, which is really all about understanding how much carbon was actually sequestered and then getting that into any sort of ledger, centralized or decentralized. Now, with director carbon capture, it's, it's very basic chemistry to understand. You put in something with a certain concentration and outside a different concentration comes out and it's very easy to measure. If you have hundreds of thousands of, of acres of forest growing, it's very hard to detect how much carbon is being sequestered. So there's also the issuing problem of like how many tons ought to be issued for a particular piece of land, which blockchain does not help with at all. And so we'll see what happens. But with the double counting piece, I do think you know, blockchain, as well as just any sort of relational database that everyone has access to, could both be solutions. This market is clearly growing fast, right, Brennan? I mean, you, you talked about basically a doubling of transaction volume over the last 12 months. Obviously, with this massive opening up of the carbon removal side of the market, would you expect that it's likely to be five new players, you know, five patches or three patches or two patches kind of coming out and really establishing themselves in this space and, and ultimately being a new asset class in the, the, the intermediaries here? Or would you say there's likely to be quite a lot of fragmentation with lots of different niches uh, at play here? How, how do you see the market evolving as a whole in your space? General software infrastructure, whether it's SMS with Twilio or payments with Adyen and Stripe, tends to consolidate and be a winner-takes-most ecosystem. There will always be many competitors, but they typically get scooped up by the players that achieve scale the fastest. Mm -hmm. And so I would be really surprised if, you know, in five or ten years from now, 
there'd be more than like three or four dominant patch-like players in the ecosystem. But between then and now, there's going to be many. Because you know, I, you know, successful ideas attract many other successful ideas. Very similar to carbon accounting. I think I have a spreadsheet of like 100 carbon accounting tools that I'm tracking. They're not all going to be around in two or three years, right? There, some are going to be more successful. Some are going to raise and acquire and consolidate others. And so I expect something very similar yeah. happening in this space. Fantastic. Brendan, this has been a super interesting conversation. Is there anything else that you'd kind of want to share? And, and I guess... Again, just to emphasize, right, our listener community tends to be business-centric. They tend to be from the retail, grocery, fashion, food, heavy-emitting, complex value chain, complex supply chain sector. Are there any kind of final messages you'd want to leave them with? I think the, the biggest thing to keep in mind is, going back to the point I was making earlier about making it easy to do good things, the only way to get a billion people to do something is going to be with a computer where they don't actually have to do it. And it's automated and just built into the fabric of, in this case, commerce. Um, if you need some way to be sustainable and that something is going to be going to some sort of separate application or store or some essentially changing behavior consistently, I think that's going to be a really difficult sell versus just like today, you swipe your credit card and you know your identity is not going to get stolen because of PCI compliance. We believe the next version of that is going to be when you swipe your credit card, any sort of negative environmental externality associated with that transaction, whether it be carbon, water, plastic, biodiversity, will be compensated on your behalf and addressed. While again, these companies focus on mitigating their impact in the first place. So my message will be focus on making it such that consumers don't have to change their behavior in a meaningful way and change it for them on their behalf. Brendan, thank you so much. Really appreciated having you. Super exciting conversation. Obviously, this is a topic that we're going to see coming out more and more. It's going to be more and more dominant whether you back nature-based solutions or carbon removal, whether you think that Article 6 is solved or not, clearly this market is, is not going anywhere but up in the years to come. Thank you so much again for taking time out for us. Looking forward to having more conversations in the future. Awesome. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of This is Altruistic. Now for some shameless self-promotion. Altruistic provides global enterprises with the technology infrastructure needed to measure, manage, and abate their sustainability impact. Please get in touch if you want to find out how Altruistic can help your business to profitably improve your impact on the world. You can reach us on hello at altruistic.com. The notes from this episode are available in the show notes below, and you can find more episodes of the This is Altruistic podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thank you.